The kind of old-fashioned cop who preferred working the streets and making arrests to taking tests toward promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This is One Tough Podcast. Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joined here, like always, with Carlo. Hello, good morning. Sorry to see the back of your head, Carlo. Well, at least I don't have the coronavirus, so... Well, good. Okay, very good. Okay, this week we have a very interesting guest, and I'm real interested to hear this for all our listeners out there. We've had some great people, and then we had super spies, under spies. Uh, we had people went to jail. We had Giuliani with everybody here. This week we got Robin Drake. Robin's a best-selling author, professional speaker for the for corporations now. He was formerly chief of the FBI Counterintelligence Behavioral Analyst Unit. And we're going to talk about that because I don't get it, but I want to know about it. <laughs> uh, he has a new book out, Sizing People Up. First of all, Robin, thank you very, very much. You know, we got a little bit of background with the FBI. Jim Fox was one of my dearest friends, the oh, former yeah. assistant director of the FBI in New York. Uh, Tom Nicoletti, I could keep on going and going. All the all the guys from the bureau that were disgraced by these other bums that were in office uh, now that really took the heart and soul out of the great institution of the FBI, and I mean that from my heart. Okay, let's talk about you a little bit about your background. Naval Academy, what years? I was there from 1988 to 1992. Took me an extra year to get in. Almost took me an extra year to get out. <laughs> I will be there. Uh, when two weeks? March 20th. March 20th. My dear friend Admiral Ed Straw, three-star admiral, will be honored. And what's that about? Uh, I think it's he's getting distinguished uh, graduate award. And yeah, I'll be awesome. at, I'll be at the academy there honoring him. And, and my the, son is there right now, so you'll get to see him. Wow, too. <laughs> that's great! You know, a lot of people don't know the Naval Academy is the pomp and circumstances makes you feel beautiful. That and West Point, of course. We'll talk a little bit about the Army there too. They're pretty good too. But you uh, went to Naval Academy, and then you went into the Marine Corps. Yep, did uh, five years in the Marine Corps after that. Um, you were able to serve a select Marine Corps from the Naval Academy. Um, <laughs> I wanted to go pilot. Eyes went bad, and uh, they put me on a ship for one summer and uh, threw up a lot, said, this isn't for me, and so we got to go hardcore now. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, at the, I was with Ed Straw. We were at a, a uh, Navy-Notre Dame game at Giant Stadium. And oh, yeah. I'll, I'll never forget, uh, and Governor Christie was, like, sitting real near, near close to me, and he's alumni from Notre Dame, uh, with the uh, blue blazes, uh, the typical Notre Dame rah-rahs, and they're screaming and yelling, and I'm going to use a curse because we're allowed to do that, and they're yelling, break his fucking neck. I turned around. I said, break his neck? These kids are going to be in Afghanistan next year protecting your fat ass. I said, how about I break your fucking neck? And almost got into, uh, almost got into a little fisticuffs. I said, this is a football game. You want someone's neck to be broken? I'll break your fucking neck. And it yeah. got me really pissed off. Let's talk about what you did in counterintelligence. And, and this is very unique to me, this behavioral analysis unit. The only thing I used to do when I was a homicide detective, I hung people off buildings by their ankles and I questioned them. And, uh, and, we, and, and then it was a, a different, different era. So the point is, I want to know about this behavioral analyzation unit. What is it all about? Let all our right, listeners so hear this. 
Yeah, sure. So actually, I started my career in the FBI in New York. So I was in our New York field office. Jim Calstrom was the ADIC when I showed up there right after uh, TWA Flight 800. Um, and so I got assigned to work Russians. And so I actually, so my job inside New York City, my entire career was counterintelligence, which means primarily my job was to recruit spies. And now the behavioral analysis program um, that I got on, what it's it's there's lots of behavioral things in the in the universe and law enforcement, and most of them are for what types of things that you did, trying to find unsubs using profiling. You know, my, my my unit did, and then what I eventually took over was we actually know who we need to interact with, and and basically we come up with interview and recruitment strategies, basically, as well as double agent ops and false flags, all the hooky spooky spy stuff. So that's what my uh, unit was primarily responsible for, is helping case agents strategize that across the country. Let's strip it down a little bit, because like I, I remember, and I still do it now, I'm still a detective, we do private now, and mm-hmm. uh, when you were questioning the suspect, whether it be a CEO, uh, doing fraud or whatever, or we actually broke a big murder case in uh, Kentucky, a triple murder on a, on a federal witness. Uh, matter of fact, he was an Army major that committed the murders. And, uh, you know, in talking to people, interrogation is one thing. What's the difference between behavior anal- – how do you say it? Behavior analysis. What's the difference between that and interrogation? There's actually not too much difference, um, believe it or not. It's because basically what, whether you're trying to you know inspire a criminal to confess to you or whether you're trying to inspire a spy to you know come on board with you, you're basically figuring out what their priorities are, and you're t- giving them resources in terms of those things. Because human beings will always act in our own best interest in terms of safety, security, and prosperity, and it's from their point of view. And so all you did you know as a homicide detective and as you do still do now is you're trying to figure out what they think is in their best interest. You're trying to figure out what their priorities are, and then you're giving them options in terms of their priorities about how they want to move forward. And you give yourself as a resource in terms of those options. So you seek their thoughts and opinions. You talk in terms of what's important to them. You validate them without judging them because, you know, if you judge them, their shields are up. They're not going to share with you. And then you give them choices on how to move forward. Those are the four basic principles of how to make a conversation about someone else and inspire them to come on board with you. And a lot of these were, uh, I mean, do you speak Arabic yourself? No, I don't speak anything. I speak very bad English from New well, York. You and I, but uh, how would you communicate with one of these uh, talheads? No, it was Russians mostly. Is that correct? Yeah, it's mostly Russians. But here's the thing, you know, so what the FBI does is we're domestic. And so if they're serving over here as diplomats, then they have to be able to speak English. And so what helped was, you know, I generally worked against military targets and being former military, you know, you kind of have a common vernacular and common background. So it's a little easier to communicate communicate because roughly 80% of language and communication is nonverbal anyway. So you can kind of start filling in words. So in other words, you were, you didn't have to have an interpreter. So now what if you had a suspected, suspected uh, terrorist? I mean, I'm sure you had to have some kind of cases on him besides the Russians, right? Yeah, especially during 9-11, because I was in New York during 9-11, um, had an engine land about 30 feet from my car from the plane that hit the South Tower. And wow. during that time frame, yeah, we, we worked nothing but uh, Middle East for probably about six months, because that's when uh, John O'Neill was my SAC. Jo- Johnny was one of my dear friends. We used to drink at Elaine's, and Johnny yep. Johnny got killed by bin Laden a roundabout way. Him and Nicoletti were involved when they Pakistan with the four Americans that got killed yep. over there. They, they were the agents over there. I love John. O'Neill and uh, we lost a great American hero there. That son of a bitch got him in the towers and he said he was going to get him. Yeah. So go ahead. 
Yeah, so um, during that time frame right after that, you know, for about six months, you know, we're seven, no, 12 on, 12 off, seven days a week, and we worked nothing but Middle East, so I actually contacted all my people I used, you know, to help me against Russians, and I said, all right, time to train the guns on the Middle East, and we wound up finding some really uh, – useful people. Matter of fact, even I remember even just the interviews that we were doing um, right after the Iraq war broke out. That's why I love New York City. You can find anyone that can help you with anything in the world in New York. And we actually found the uh, the dentist, the Saddam Hussein, that told us how he was, used to run between the embassies. And all of a sudden, two hours later, we got bunker busters going off. <laughs> wow. Wow. wow, wow. That is... Well, you know, one of my uh, interrogation techniques that I uh, offered to do was after 9-11, we went down and my partner, Mike Servo, and I went down there after the towers came down for a couple of days. But one of the things I offered to do, and I said, you know what, with the advent of the suspension of the Patriot Act came into play, where all of a sudden everybody didn't really care about rights. It was to stop the next attack. And one of my things was, my common sense was, look, if I have a suspect that's going to let a bomb go off in New York City, and I got him, we got to do what you got to do. My One of my ideas was, to take, uh, you know, we used to have the pigs down in Chinatown where they carry them over their backs and they make the uh, roast pork. Cut mm -hmm. one of those pigs open, put the guts on the guy's head, shoot the guy in the leg and question him. Tell him you're not going to get to the 72 virgins. Now, that's, is that behavioral science? <laughs> well, I can tell you the behavioral science behind how uh, their brain will totally shut down and not talk to you. <laughs> no, no, no. But if they, you know yourself, part of the Quran is they can't die with any piece of pork on them. And uh, I just figured if we just use that as a vernacular to question them, tell them, hey, look, at next thing, we're going to shove a ham sandwich down your friggin' throat unless you tell us. I mean, maybe that would be enough for their behavior to kick in and get to the 72 virgins. Think about it. So I always I always view everything as no right or wrong, just cause and effect. So yes, you can get information doing that, but here's the challenge with it, is that you're gonna have information that is suspect because there was no connection when given. In other words, they they didn't have dopamine being released in their brain. Uh, there was their pleasure centers were not firing at all. So they're gonna do anything they can to get out of a situation that's uncomfortable. And so what you're gonna have to do in situations like this, and that's why you know people that are on time constraints of getting information, they can get these tidbits, but then. They need five or ten other sources to verify that one that one tidbit of information, and so again, no right or wrong. It's just going to cause you more work as well, um, depending on the technique you use. Well, I sound like a little bit of a psychopath, but I'm not. I'm truly a very. <laughs> I'm a grandpa, and I re really love this country. But one of my other ideas. Now, talk about ideas because it comes into play. You know, we were fighting in Afghanistan, we're fighting in Iraq, and the majority of the people we're fighting were of the Muslim religion. And again, we go back to the Muslim religion. In fact, if they are killed and they have any part of pig droppings on them or whatever, they don't get to the 72 virgin. How about with our hollow points, put pieces of bacon in there and let it be known? We're using bacon in our hollow points, so if we whack you there, Abdul, you ain't getting to the 72. What's wrong with that, uh, Robin? I just laughing. I'm sorry. Just because. Uh, well, no, no, but just think about it in the behavioral science way. Yeah, you just yeah, said something that hits the dolphins in their brain. All of a sudden, they go, "Holy crap!" If one of my Marines or one of my Navy SEALs shoots me with that bullet, they got they got bacon in there. I don't get to the 72 version. They'd give up. No. Well, they'd give up. It, it, it's definitely you're creating a fascinating brand for yourself when you do that. Um, I, I have a lot of friends, you know, that are you know still in the Marine Corps and they served over there. And, and they, going back to the behavioral science, they said, you know, 
they thought about this technique you're talking about. The uh, the the technique they found to be most um, most effective though is talking about their chickens and goats. <laughs> you know, again, they, they their priorities was their small little circle of prosperity, and if uh, if the Marines were able to you know contribute to some way to their small little circuit of prosperity. And I know one group actually collected tons of shoes from the states um, because none of them had shoes, none of the kids had shoes. So they actually literally had shoe drives for the kids, and that got the parents on board with them uh, rather than the Taliban. So it's, again, there I, I don't believe in right or wrong in, in these areas of behavioral science. There's just cause and effect. And so uh, each, each one of these things creates a brand for yourself, so it comes down to what leaders want as a brand. So, Robin, yeah. getting back to what you're saying is uh, being able to establish a relationship and rapport with someone is ultimately going to be more effective if you can relate to someone in their – what they – value and what they want to get in terms of their goals, then that's going to obviously lead to a better result. Oh, guaranteed. So you're saying with like the goats. Now, I did see some CIA drone pictures. Some of these guys are having sex with the frigging goats. That's a fact. <laughs> Some of these, you don't know that. Do you know that? I haven't seen those videos. Carlo, did you ever see the videos? I Some saw of, the videos. Thank you very much. They were actually having sex with the goats. So you could threaten to take his lover goat away from him, huh? And that would kick him into maybe cooperating. You're laughing about it, but we got to use behavioral <laughs> science here, no? <laughs> Think about it, Carlo. What are you laughing about, Carlo? Okay. Um, okay. I want to get back to the uh, <laughs> counterintelligence and behavior analysis. Robin, um, when you were working for the Bureau in counterintelligence, were you uh, involved in the Robert Hansen case at all? Um, loosely, yeah. He actually, uh, when he was in New York prior to him going down to D.C., he was actually on my squad. Uh, we did not overlap on time, but most a lot of people in my squad did overlap. And when he was uh, ultimately arrested, we got a couple leads up um, in my squad with me and my, uh, matter of fact, my partner in the book's called Jesse Thorne. Um, we had to go down and kind of look at some of the files that he was actually in charge of and see see where we could start making connections we didn't know about before. So, yeah, I was involved loosely, and my team was too. Yeah. And uh, now I tell you what, but now bringing now you're in the private sector, you're able to make money. Now, Mm -hmm. how do you put this now into the private sector? Okay, I had my friend Jack Welch used to run General Electric, all these big name guys. How do you move that into the corporate level to utilize your great talents into the corporate? Yeah, it's it's really simple. Uh, I start out by really relating what I did in New York or and in my entire career is my job is recruiting spies, which I basically it's the toughest sales job you have in the world. My job is to sell American patriotism to foreign spies who are basically foreign diplomats working on behalf of another country. So that's the first sales challenge right there. Second sales challenge is it was illegal for me to make an approach to them because they're diplomats. And so by treaty, I cannot initiate contact with the people I'm trying to sell to. Third challenge is they generally don't do illegal acts. Um, they're collecting open source information and sourcing it to people in positions of knowledge, and that makes it intelligence. And so they've done nothing wrong 99% of the time. They don't want to buy my product, and I can't even talk to them. So how do you recruit a spy? It's really easy, just like you sell any product. You figure out what their priorities are, and you give them resources in terms of that. So if I could determine which of these people, one of their priorities – in terms of their safety, security, prosperity, was that a dying wish of a mother, or a father, or a grandfather? Was that their children wouldn't grow up under that horrible regime and they wanted a better life and that life might happen to be here? Well, that's a priority that I have resources for. So my job was basically figure out out of those people which ones had priorities that I could align with. And right. so I related to companies like that, and it comes down to creating that internal brand where people want to work and creating a 
brand people come back for. Well, you could convert that into all right, so if there's no diplomat or spy network and all that. I'm talking about converting this knowledge sales. into regular sales for corporations. Yep. Other than that, how do you convert that into that? It's exactly the same because what what do people do when they're selling a product? They're trying to figure out which people out there in their in their market have a need for the thing they're selling and which is a priority. So we're doing exactly the same thing. Great salespeople are figuring out the priorities and needs of their potential clients, and they're figuring out how to get in front of them to show them what their resources are that they have in terms of those people's priorities. It's exactly the same process. And, so you're and basically building out a profile of a potential customer or client. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, most of my clients are in the uh, finance industry because it's all about creating customer relations and creating that good. Because when people are giving you boat tons of money, um, you got to feel like you can trust them. So this whole process is all about inspiring good trust and good, healthy relationships. Yeah. So what are some techniques an average person can build to uh, you know use utilize what you know about behavior analysis to their everyday lives or business or what have you? Really, really very simple. Um, I'm not a natural-born leader. I was a natural-born self-centered narcissist that uh, had to learn the hard way, you know, not to, that you don't fix problems with a baseball bat, um, <laughs> even though I wanted to. Um, so basically, you know, how do you demonstrate value and affiliation to another person? We're genetically and biologically coded to want to be valued and affiliated to meaningful groups and organizations because it's good for our survival. I mean, you know, you, Bo, and NYPD, that is a brotherhood, you know, that is deeply entrenched, you know, because it felt safe and secure and, and because it meant survival. Same thing with the Marine Corps, FBI, all these organizations. So how do you demonstrate that? It's really very easy. You seek the thoughts and opinions of other people. Great leaders seek and opinion goes around because it says I value and I'm listening to you and I want to affiliate with you. Second, you talk in terms of those priorities, those needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations that people have because here's another guarantee. If you're not talking in terms of what's important to them, they're not listening. Third, you validate their thoughts and opinions and who they are as human beings without judging them. I'm not saying what you to do or not do, but if you start judging and, and arguing what they think, I guarantee you they're not listening to you. Shields are up and their defenses are up. And finally, if appropriate, give them choices because, again, we only give people choices that we want to align with and that we value with. So think about it. If you understand what your priorities are, you now took time to understand what their priorities are. When you give them choices, those are overlapping priorities. It's a guarantee of how the brain works. Wow. wow. So, Robin, do you find that some salespeople that are, what would you say, naturals are doing this unconsciously and when you kind yes. of break it down? Yeah, they're absolutely doing it unconsciously. Matter of fact, I, I even whether salespeople or, or leaders in organizations, you know, here I was in New York. I spent about nine years in New York uh, as an agent there. I was born in Manhattan, grew up in Putnam County. I'm a local guy, and I I got my transfer to Norfolk, Virginia. Great, lived lived down there in Virginia Beach. Was down there all of 18 months. Cheaper cost of living. Well, all my friends from New York, my supervisor in particular, decided to go to FBI headquarters, took a promotion. And they called me up, and he called me up. He said, hey, Robin, we miss you. Why don't you come on up to headquarters? You know, ride the train again. Take a two-hour commute again <laughs> and uh, and sit behind a desk. And this moron listened to him. After only 18 months of living down there on the beach, I listened to him. And you know why? Because when I was in New York and I was you know, working these, these spy cases and everything, every day he asked me my thoughts and opinions. He talked in terms of what was important to me. Um, he validated all the things I was saying and doing, and he gave me choices on how to move forward on my cases. 
who wouldn't want to work for that kind of guy? So it's everywhere, just well, like that. Well, you know, you know what you're saying is it was really great down at the beach of Virginia Beach, but you weren't really, uh, uh, you you weren't you had an appetite for a lot more, and you wanted yeah. that appetite to. Uh, it was not as interesting as going to Washington and dealing with these major cases. Am I correct? Um, yes, ish. Um, you know, I still had about 12 years left in my career at the time, and the cases down there were good. The people were fantastic, but again, the draw of not yeah, just not just the, on the professional side for the challenge of it. That was definitely part of it, but also it was the people. All my, all the people I went through 9/11 with, all the people I worked intensely with, you know, uh, had all gone up to headquarters. So I said, all right, let's give this a shot. My wife thought I was crazy, uh, and she said, this is the last move we're doing, so you better like it. <laughs> How many kids you got? I got two. I got one at the Naval Academy. I mean, I got one about graduate George Mason University. Oh, as good, a nurse. they're big. So, but I mean, that had to be hard to relocate with the, when they were younger. Yeah, it was uh, three three elementary schools in three years because uh, well, we lived in when, when we left New York, we lived in Rockland County. Took that commute down to Palisades every day. People don't realize that you know it's more effective on the children because they develop friends, and all of a sudden you're pulling them out. And when now with the advent of the social media bullshit, they're able to keep in communication. But back then it was a little harder, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it definitely was. I remember my the saddest thing still in my life to this day. We moved down there in November 2005, and my daughter's birthday is in February. And she hadn't made that many friends yet. And so we, we asked some of the neighbors' kids to come over and everything, and no one came to my daughter's birthday party. And wow. I was crushed. Yeah, I was crushed. Yeah. Robin, another question for you, because what you mentioned about the camaraderie of mm -hmm. uh, your team. So, you know, we talked a little bit about working with corporations and in, in their external ec efforts of getting clients and uh, developing sales and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, what can uh, business leaders learn to, you know, help their in their teams internally and in how to really build up that morale and that uh, group, um, you know, mission? Well, first of all, you do those four things I'm talking about. And then in my five-step sort of code of trust, it, it really comes down to what I realized after my entire career of trying to make myself look good and be successful, you know, doing things. I realized that all those things I was trying to accomplish re relied on relationships and people. And so I started shifting. The first thing I, I started doing is understanding exactly what my priorities are and then I'll think in terms of how can I inspire people around me to want to be part of that. And so the next thing is I have these three anchors that are my – end all be all for how to move forward with anything you're trying to accomplish is one I ask myself is everything I'm doing insane and about to engage someone with going to help or hinder a good healthy professional relationship in order to do that number two is I have to have open honest communication with transparency because you can't have a healthy relationship without that and third I make myself an available resource for the success and prosperity of others with no expectation of reciprocity because that makes sure I'm not trying to be manipulative so when I honor those three anchors everything else falls into place the second thing you got to understand the priorities of those people around you you understand the priorities of your people you'd be a resource for them understand Understand the priorities of your customers. Be a resource for that. And if you don't have the solution the customers are looking for, be a resource for helping them find where that solution is. Wow. Third, third context. You know, understand the context. How they see you. You know, coming through the door. I mean, there's a big difference between, you know, a, a guy like Bo Deedle and then me coming through the door as FBI and NYPD, or a, a, a salesman from, you know, Empire Direct Carpet. You know, there's, you, know so you got to understand how the world sees you and take that into account. The language now, you've got to make sure that you're using the language, those four things I said, seeking thoughts and opinions, talking in terms of priorities, validating power of choice. And the final thing, when you're going to put this all together, the, your opening statement should be very clearly a positive thing you're doing. So you're going to validate a specific non-judgmental strength attribute or action that this person has taken in their lives, demonstrate you see them, you see their greatness, 
And if it's a first-time contact and you don't have any of that yet, you can actually at least validate and, and honor their time because no one ever has to give it to you. So those are the five things I like to do. Wow. Call it. You make notes of that? I'm taking notes. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. We could use this shit in our company. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I see you wearing – step back a little bit. Sit back. I see you wearing Innocent Life Foundation. Yeah. Please let me know about that. Obviously – you're yeah. wearing it. Is meaning behind it? And I'd like to know what that's all about. Absolutely. So uh, one of my great friends, uh, his name's Chris Hagnagy. He's a social engineer and a penetration tester that actually helps companies protect themselves against um, intrusive hackers. In his in his job of doing this over the years, he keeps stumbling across um, these really dirtbags on the dark web that are trafficking in uh, child porn and trafficking in children. And he put our foundation together about two years ago, and they, we got our, our team of cyber experts that uh, troll the uh, dark web, and we find these anonymous people on there, and they uncover them. So we wow. positive, we positively ID, ID uh, child traffickers and child pedophiles. We put these packages together, and we hand them over to law enforcement. And so last year um, – and we had 95 cases we handed over uh, to federal law enforcement, which every case affects at least six to anywhere from six to 400 kids. This year we're up to 45 cases. And so that's what my foundation does is I'm a board member on it. Um, we, we uncover the worst of worst of humanity and we hand them over uh, so law enforcement can prosecute. And it is the most gratifying thing I've ever done in my wow, life. Wow, that, that sounds like a great organization. Is that a baseball bat that I see in your insignia? <sighs> No, actually, that is a, a light uh, from a lighthouse. Oh, oh I do. It was a baseball bat. Like you crushed, <laughs> crushed their fucking heads with the baseball. That could, have, that could look like that, too. No. That's uh, like, a lighthouse. You know, the beacon of light of hope is if that well, is Well, it could be deemed both ways. You see, I look at it not as a light. I look at it as a, a bat I'd like to break their fucking heads with. You look at it as a light that you're showing them up. So it could be you know, both ways, right? It definitely could because uh, <laughs> I, I tell you, it's it's hard to hold back when you see some of these things that yeah. these people do. But uh, we have fantastic human beings. Working I was on I was involved for years with John, uh, uh, the one who had his son John killed. John Walsh. John Walsh with the oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah with the National Center out of uh, Washington, and we were involved with that with the abused children and all that and the missing children. Yep. And I tell you, it's some really horrific stories. And now with the advent of the web, these friggin' creeps now get to hide behind the web and they're pre pronouncing, pre uh, presenting themselves as yep. young young boys or young gals, yep. and they're just taking our kids out like this. And we see it every day. Disappearance yep. of this kid, disappearance of that kid. Hey, let me compliment you on that. It's something that really, and I know the dark web very well. I have a cybersecurity keystroke encryption company I own, and wow. I and I, and we're dealing with a lot of Department of Defense guys. What's the name of the inquest? Yeah, inquest. Inquest. You ever hear that one? Department of Defense guys who are in the mm -hmm. Pentagon and all that, and we're do, we're dealing with that now, which they they're, they're uh, you know they're part of that penetration testing also, you know. Yep. No, fantastic. Um, yeah, it, it's the Internet has really made it so much easier for these dirtbags to do harm to our children. So having it makes it even more and you can't even keep up with the technology. I mean, these guys are using technology to keep relationships covert. That's as, just as advanced, if not more advanced than spies are using, mm -hmm. you know. And so if kids want to hide things from their parents, they're going to be able to do it. It's a right, guarantee. It so, so we shift to the behavioral side. Like, how do you then have a relationship with your kids so they don't want to hide things from you? Well, wow. and then they have the disappearing, like our mayor, Big Bird de Blasio, a moron. All of a sudden, he's now texting where his texts disappear and his emails disappear. What's that called? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different apps that do that. 
Yeah, no. so he doesn't want anybody to know when he's taking money on his corruption, so they actually disappear. And uh, I guess Hillary will use that next in her next life instead of beating up the uh, the websites, you know? Yeah, te technology out there is crazy. I mean, and, and, and you can guarantee as soon as someone figures out, you know, what they want to hide from someone so they can do things that are horrible, um, they'll someone will create a way to make money off it. Yeah. Now, how many books have you written? Uh, three. And what are the names of the books, Robin? Um, so the first one, it's called uh, <laughs> It's Not All About Me, The Top Ten Techniques to Quick Rapport with Anyone. Um, my wife generally holds that in my face once a day. Um, <laughs> my, my second one is The Code of Trust, and The Code of Trust is really focused on the behaviors that we can have to inspire trust in others. And the one that just came out, it's called Sizing People Up. And these are six signs for predicting behavior of others. And how many major corporations, you don't have to name them, but how many major corporations are you in now? What, what corporations? Um, geez, I, I probably do about 40 to 50 engagements a year with different groups um, um, from, you know, all the way down to Mexico City, all the way up to Canada, um, covering a lot of different areas. But mo again, mostly it's finance industry and then any any groups that deal with hardcore sales mm -hmm. um, and a lot of internal leadership, too, um, especially when you're dealing with engineering type companies or cyber type companies where they hire from within. You know, a lot of times these process and procedure engineers um, are, are challenged with uh, the soft skills of how to create an environment where people want to work. And that's where I really come in and make their make their soft skills into a process because that's what it is you know you can actually start in doing these things and so you, there's actually a method to be empathetic and that's what i have so that's what well, I just one one little word to you uh, be careful when you travel in mexico Thirty-four thousand murders yeah. last year a lot yep. of people i told carlo here he wanted to take his bull hugging baden suit and go to cabo st lucas he thinks that it's safe down there thirty-four <laughs> Thousand murders in 2019, Carla. I don't want you going there, okay? All right. All right. You know, it was funny too. Um, <clears throat> it, I've traveled all over the world when I was in the bureau, and the most stressed I was was going down to Mexico City. But luckily, it wasn't as bad as I thought. It's just I was there for less than 24 hours, and I learned very rapidly: don't drink the water. It stuck with me for another two weeks. Oh wow, and then also I, w I was watching the uh, the golf uh, tournament on the weekend was in Mexico City, and I really had this like crazy feeling about something was going to happen not nice, and thank God it was okay. But in reality, when I give these numbers, because we have information that comes through the State Department, sure. and a yep. lot of people, and these are not drug dealers. These right. are tourists. These are people that mysteriously they disappear. They find the bodies months later, and they don't keep very good records. I'm very surprised they're even allowing the records of 34,000 people murdered in the in the country. That's more than Afghanistan, Iraq, everything's That's put crazy. together. It's so beyond anything. And I'm not talking about just Mexico City, Cabo, or even uh, Cancun, anywhere. Mm -hmm. So just be leery about Mexico. But, oh, no doubt. No yeah. doubt. So, Robin, something I think we kind of glossed over. Uh, so when you left the FBI, when did you get this idea that you could translate these skills to the private sector? Like, when did when did that inception start? It actually happened before I left the FBI. So I, when I went to start teaching at Quantico in 2008, um, I was asked to start teaching counterintelligence interviewing and source recruiting. And that was the first time, you know, I had gotten better at this, you know, through my career, just through on-the-job training and being on my behavioral team. And so it was the first time I was actually forced to sit down and make that linear art form, I mean, make that art form a paint-by-number. So I had to give labels and meanings to all these behaviors so I could actually share it with people. And that's when I call my 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 tundra effect, my green tundra, I 
I mean, the day I bought my new truck, you know, it's like all of a sudden 300 people in my county bought the same truck. You, you know, we do that all the time. We buy a new car, you start seeing that same car. <laughs> and so, and so I, so I gave labels and meanings to all these behaviors that these great people around me were doing in order to build rapport, build trust, build relationships, recruit. And that's when the fog started clearing. And so I had a good friend of mine, Joe Navarro, retired F, uh, FBI guy, was on my team, wrote the international bestseller, what everybody is saying. He's a nonverbal expert. And he pushed me hard. He said, publish, 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 publish. He said, if you have at least one bit of information anyone in the world could benefit from, sh- shame on you for not getting it out there. And so then I had to keep going through the process with the Bureau for, from pre-publication review. And then I had people um, – asking me to do speaking engagements. And so I got outside employment authority. So I was doing this since 2010 as a part-time thing, using my annual leave to do it. Um, so I could pay for my daughter's college education. My son's free right now. And then, uh, and then it was an easy transition when I retired that I just shifted to full time. Wow. And, uh, as far as the, uh, that was a great thing cause you got a good head start while you were still in the bureau and you got yep. the permission obviously from the bureau yep. to do stacks it. of paper every year. <laughs> yeah. I have a, I have a friend of mine who works with the movie industry and she was involved with the FBI series and Ann Began. I'm sure you know her mm-hmm. and Began, And, uh, you know, she had that course, she has to cross that line to get the permission. But then all of a sudden, you know, you got to make a move, especially if you add your time in and you have now set the set the table. It's sometimes good to move on to the next the next career. And you did very well. Thanks. Yeah. And again, I, I give credit to having good mentors and guides. You know, my good friend Joe, he told me about five to seven years before I retired, he goes, get get your own personal cell phone and start using that for your business. Do this, do that. You know, build, build your resume of things that you have um, that is uniquely you. So when you retire, your package is ready. And it actually went a lot faster than I thought just because the, the books really helped. You know, I, fir- I self-published my first book and that went it still sells. Uh, I've sold probably 100,000 copies of that 25,000-word book I had. Wow. And so I got picked up by a literary agent in New York um, from that and an article I wrote on the Code of Trust. And so that I, w- I didn't pursue it. They pursued me, which was very fortunate and very rare, um, mostly because I think when you approach things from a standpoint that I'm a moron and here's my manuals on how, how not to be the moron I was born to be, that kind of gets endearing sometimes. No, you're far <laughs> from a moron. You're very – Yeah, I mean what you say is a lot of common sense. Sense, but you're putting it into perspective as far as it's easy steps to follow. And I think it it's, it's just a natural, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It is. I, I call it the elusive obvious. These are things that everyone is doing every day. They just don't know they're doing it. And half the time we're screwing it up. So I'd like to make it easier for people not to screw it up. Well, you know, we, we have a lot of listeners and I would uh, recommend reading, uh, you know, reading, sizing people up and all that. And in reality, instead of watching the, uh, what's the name of that stupid series, The Outlander is some jerk. They fly back to the 1600 on uh, uh, instead of reading and looking at the moron movies and stuff that's on TV, read a book like Sizing People Up and gather real good intelligence instead of wasting your time looking at the friggin' boob tube, you know, Carlo? Yeah. Uh, Robin, I, I want just, you to read more, Carlo. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read Sizing People Up. Okay. Um, so one question for you. Do you find mm-hmm. it, you know, that... People have these personality types. People grow up, you know, it's kind of nature and nurture, and you know, they have these traits or abilities. Uh, do you find that people can effectively uh, change their personality to incorporate these uh, traits and, and techniques and things like that? 
Absolutely. Um, it's not a, I don't consider it a change of personality because you really can't change your biology, your genetics, and all the things you learned in a formative years of life. But what you can do, because I can't, I'm still the narcissist, you know, self-centered ass in here. Um, but, but what you can do is, you know, when, when you give labels and meanings to all these things that you know that you are lacking in, because everyone's got greatness and everyone's got things we're working on, but we can identify those things that you're lacking in, cascading those new behaviors on top. It, you can do it, and that's why I love giving these labels and meanings so they can start cascading. I, I mean, you know, Bo, you know, when you first can't, went into NYPD, I guarantee you, you're not a master interrogator and and and, conf, and getting confessions from criminals. It came from getting new behaviors that you started cascading on top, and it's the same here. So that's why I for the current book, you know, six signs for behavior prediction, you know, so you can actually look at someone and see them with more clarity of what you can reasonably expect from that interaction. And also with the code of trust, it's like, what behaviors do I need to have instead of being self-centered on what I'm trying to accomplish? How can I make myself a resource for others so they'll want me part of their team? Mm. Can you give us like just like one quick example of a behavior prediction just so the listeners can understand uh, kind of what we're talking about? Sure. Well, um, just, you know, the first one of the six for sizing people up. The first one's called vesting. Vesting is where I'm looking at your words, actions, and deeds. Are you actually equally invested in my success as much as your own? Um, and so at work, this is real simple. You know, if they're vested in you, they're going to give you training opportunities. They're going to give you projects that um, they know are going to make you look good and be successful. They're going to put you in places to be prosperous. Um, next one is longevity, and we'll just do two. Next one's longevity. Do they see you here for the long haul, or are they just a quick pre- quid pro quo, longevity type things. They're establishing traditions with you. You're part of the, you know, going out to happy hour once a week. Um, they're giving you long-term assignments that might take, you know, one, two, three months, or maybe two, three years. So they're demonstrating that they see you here for the long haul. So those are just two of the six. Carla, you want to go out to happy hour with me tonight? Sure. <laughs> okay. See, we're putting it into practice already. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. This is a uh, you know, is there? Do you have like a a two page sheet, like a fifty thousand foot uh, example sheet? I mean, that to me, I'm an idiot. I really, it's hard for me to sit and read a twenty five thousand word book. And, yep. But I certainly could look at an idiot sheet. And I always say that whenever I have a new product or something, I says, look it, I'm not a technical guy. Give me fifty thousand foot idiot sheet. Here's what it is. And, you know, Bo, that was just a perfect lead into, and actually I have it printed out with me right here. I mean, <laughs> at, at the end of every chapter of my book, I have the, the – it's called a debriefing sheet where everything you just read, if you didn't want to read it, that's fine. If you read it once, you want to go back. It, it talks about the sign, the key quote, the key, mes- the key message, and then the takeaways. You have 10, sign, 10 tells for that behavior sign, 10 tells against it. And I literally – it's a lot of content. So I, I printed them out. And I carry it with me just and in case. And that's in the book, Sizing yeah. People yep. Up. Well, now I can recommend to our listeners, you don't have to read the 25,000 words. Look at the footnotes, and you yep. can learn it. Yep. 100%. Wow, that sounds like great. Now, how do people reach out to you? So, some of our listeners, how would they reach out to you? We have a lot of corporate heads that listen to our podcast and really in tune. How would they get in touch with my new best friend, Robin? <laughs> Easiest way is my website. It's called peopleformula.com, all one word, peopleformula.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, Facebook. So it's pretty easy to get. You just Google last, last name, Dreek, D-R-E-E-K-E. It's pretty unusual, and uh, you'll you'll find me. But, yeah, my website's probably the best way. It's got links to all my books, links to my training, links to me. 
Wow. I'm really very, very impressed. Not too many people impress me on my podcast. You do. And I like your I narcissism the same way I like the <laughs> I like the guy that I know for 40 years sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He's a friggin' narcissist, but he's getting shit done. So you can say whatever you want about him. He's getting stuff done. Uh, so was on, if I can add to that, Bo, you've got to say I was I was on Brian Kilmeade's show not too long ago. I love ago, Brian. And, he's been on our show, too. Yeah. And uh, he asked me, as I generally don't do politics, um, but, you know, I, I ventured in there because I because I've about predicting behavior. And I said, yeah, Trump is hands down the most predictable president we've ever had. And here's why. He uses a very simple uh, methodology for uh, engaging. I don't know whether he's doing conscious or not, but it's called game theory. It's called um, prisoner's dilemma. And what he does is, is if you poke him in the eye, he's going to punch you in the face really hard. <laughs> and he's going to keep punching you until you give up. And once you give up, you're best friends again. And, and kill me to ask me, you know, so give an example. I said, uh, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, um, Iran, North Korea. I mean, he does the same thing every single time. He, uh, he is just, you know, between that and following through on exactly what he said his agenda is. You know, again, you don't have to, you don't have to like him, but you can very easily predict exactly what he's going to do all the time because that's his methodology. On a personal level, with him, years ago when I was, I was brought out to do some security for one of his buildings, and then all of a sudden he lied. He lied about the circumstances around it, and then all of a sudden I get a letter in the mail. I was out of here. In 30 days, I call him up. I says, Donald, I says, you're a damn liar. He says, yeah, we did nothing wrong. He goes, well, you sided with the other people of the of the uh, administration and all this. Thing. I said, Donald, you're an effing liar. And I said, next time I see you, I'm going to smack you in your ugly head, dude. So all of a sudden, he hung up the phone on me. His security guy calls and says, you're threatening the boss. I said, where are you now? In the gym? I said, I'll put a bat over your head. He hangs up on me. Now, let's fast forward. I see him at a function. All of a sudden, he sees me across the room, and he said, Bo, Bo, how you doing? Then I get a phone call, and he says, you know, I decided to make you my friend again. I did nothing wrong, but then he made me his friend again, and you're exactly right what you're saying. You know, he'll go at you, he'll beat you up, but then you become a friend at the end. And now I regard the President of the United States as a true friend. There's a lot of things he does wrong. He attacks people, but... He's a very successful guy. He probably got more done in the first three years than the other guy did for eight years, and I, I support him 100%. And people have to realize one thing. Do you want someone up there telling you what you want to hear and doing nothing, or do you want someone up there telling you something and getting things done? And that's all I can say. And it's not a Republican. It's not a Democratic thing. It's an American thing, and I think he's great for the country. He's made us proud again. And, uh, you know, people have to really think about what – the alternative will be. Yeah, the alternative on this, this go-around is going to be pretty fascinating. Uh, at least it's going to be a very, very clear choice, I think. Yeah. Well, we do a little segment at the end of our show. First of all, we want to thank you very much, Robin. We do a little segment called Punk of the Week. Now, Punk of the Week is something that's bothering you, an issue, a person, or whatever. I'd like to know what your Punk of the Week is, Robin. Oh, geez. <laughs> what, what's bothering you this week more than anything? Um, it's still, it's still how, uh, the left attacks, you know, the, the right on everything regardless, you know, and now they're, now they're attacking on coronavirus. I mean, it just, it just, it just not seeing people understand and, and communicate effectively just always bugs the living crap out of me. So I, I would say that, you know, Pelosi's bugging me this week again, but that's kind of a standard thing. <laughs> what about you, Carlo? <laughs> hmm. There's a lot to choose from. Uh, 
I just think everyone in the, the Democratic debate this week uh, embarrassed themselves. It was, uh, it was very ugly. It was, from the moderators to the candidates, it was just, uh, uh, to put it mildly, a shit show. And uh, it's. I'll go back to that one. Yeah. I like that one too. Well, yeah, well, you know, I, I got to agree with Carlo on this because I watched the debate the other night. And the, the one that really pops up like a pimple is this Bernie Sanders. I mean, how he double talks about Cuba, how he double talks about Russia, how he double talks back and forth. And then all of a sudden the left wants us to believe that the uh, Russians are in back of Donald. Donald put sanctions on Russia. The only person that would be good for Russia is this psychopath from Vermont who vacationed in Moscow, loves socialism, and that would be his perfect vehicle. And they still don't so see it. So here's the other thing, too, that, that drives me up a wall with this, you know, with the Russia collusion thing. I worked in Russia for 21 years, and the one thing that the American press keeps getting wrong is this. They think they took a side in our last election. Russians don't take sides of any Americans. They hate all Americans. Num Russia's number one objective always is to sow distrust, and they did it perfectly because that's exactly what happened. They and didn't now take they got us anyone. fighting each other over there over yep. nothing, and there was nothing. And Rudy Giuliani is a good friend of mine. I'm with him all the time, and he has some really enlightening information from Ukraine that has to do with one of the Baltic states. In other words, our friend there, George Soros, that communist bastard, he has been behind a lot of stuff that happened in Ukraine against Donald Trump. So you want to start looking. We don't have to look that far. We can look at this Hungarian pig that lives in New York City, George Soros. Hmm. No doubt. There, there's, you know, that there's so much going on at the higher levels up there. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, Robin, Bo Deedle wants to, if you ever make your way to New York, I'd love to have a couple cocktails with you. And, uh, you know, I'd love to stay in touch. And certainly, Carlo, you must buy me behavior. Uh, let me get me the, the uh, new book, Sizing People Up. And I want you to get one of those highlighters and highlight the end of the chapters for me, okay? I will do. I'll get on a. Uh... Robin's website, peopleformula.com, for everyone out we'll there. We'll pay retail, Robin, because I believe in that. <laughs> I believe in that because I feel as though you wrote a great book, and I want and I implore our listeners to grab this book. Remember, you don't have to read 25,000 words. You could read the footnotes, and you get all the gravy. That's like having sex without foreplay. Does that you make any sense, action. Robin? That makes perfect sense to me, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks again, Robin Dreek. Fantastic. Very enlightening episode. We learned a lot today. Peopleformula.com. We'll put all the social media tags uh, in the episode notes so everyone can go check this out. Uh, you can follow us. We're One Tough Podcast on Twitter. Bo is at Bo Deedle on Twitter. And you could email us anytime, any questions, any guest suggestions, anything you like. We're One Tough Podcast at gmail.com. Check out Sizing People Up, and we'll see you next week. And one more thing. Innocent Live Foundation. How can people get to that? Because I'd like people to contribute to that. Absolutely. Um, the website for us there is innocentlivesfoundation.org. And, yeah, by all means, um, we take donations. We're not-for-profit. Um, our team of researchers do tremendous work all the time, and uh, it takes a lot of effort to get the databases we need access to and everything. Um, so dollars go a long way. Our, our overhead is very, very small. We only have two employees, and the rest are complete volunteers. And uh, so yeah, anything you can do to help us uh, help save our children, greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you for that service also. And, Robin, thank you for coming on the show. I hope to see you in person very soon, okay? I hope so, too. Thanks. Um, happy to make a new friend with you, Bo.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 